Dr. James Fallon is an award-winning neuroscientist at the University of California, Irvine. He has won awards for both his research and his teaching. Numbered among his former med student pupils is this correspondent, which allows me to note that he was the favorite instructor of our class at UCI School of Medicine. Dr. Fallon's revelations in the neurosciences have garnered headlines in recent years, and he has been featured in many international publications and television programs. In fact, I feel I owe an apology to both Dr. Fallon and you, dear listener, for taking so long to discover and address his most curious findings. Those findings transcend pure science to become a personal story with a most interesting twist. Dr. Fallon examined the brains of psychopathic killers and found a pattern in those scans. Imagine his surprise in discovering when examining his own scans that he shared those patterns. He has written about this and much more in his 2013 book, The Psychopath Inside, a neuroscientist's personal journey into the dark side of the brain. We're very keen to talk to him about it and want to say with great pleasure, welcome to Radio Parallax, Dr. James Fallon. Doug, uh, it's been 35 years since I've seen you. It's, it's it so long ago, we're now the same age, which is great to see. Apparently we are. Well, to talk about psychopaths, we have to define this term along with its, I guess, uh, twin, sociopath. Uh, it's probably going to surprise listeners to learn that this term is not in the Bible of Mental Disorders, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. So it's, it's a little bit fuzzy. Can we kind of explain to listeners what it, we're talking about? Psychopathy is a, it's a personality disorder, one of about a dozen personality disorders, but it's, it's one of the ones that's really not accepted uh, by, in the DSM-4 or the DSM-5 now. But all the traits associated with it are accepted as, as real traits. So there are personality traits that are extreme. And when you add up enough of these personality traits that are extreme, uh, there's about 20 of them, if it adds up to a, a score, of, in the case for the hair test of 30 or more, then you're called a categorical psychopath. But it's a little bit like a taxonomic field guide to birds and other flying things. You can go through the list and you say, well, it flies, it makes tripping sounds, it has wings, and it must be a, a bird, but it turns out to be a bat or a moth. So w what really uh, someone has when they have this combination of traits is, is, is not accepted at all. But there are parts of uh, psychopathy that are associated with, uh, with, with real psychiatric disorders. And uh, one is antisocial personality disorder, ASPD. So that is the kind of the really dark side of psychopathy. And I'll mention a bright side, if you will. And so there are two major factors or, or groups of traits in, in psychopathy. One is associated with what's called pro-social psychopathy. It sounds like a nice thing, you know, I'm pro-social. But it's more that's pro-social in the sense that it helps this person get through uh, social situations without being found out. And so they can really uh, get along in society because uh, many times, so, you know, one of the factors is being glib, another is being manipulative, very charming, and they have a sense, a grand sense of self-worth. And it's you know, it's, it, you can call it confidence, but it's really more narcissism than confidence. But people respond to this. So this group of traits that is this, uh, of these pro-social traits, in another test, it's called the PPI, 
psychopathy personality inventory. It's called fearless dominance. And fearless dominance, this, this group of first traits, are the ones that people associate with leadership. And so in a recent study done of all American presidents, U.S. presidents, the, those that scored the highest on this psychopathic trait of fearless dominance were also considered by voters, by adults, as having charisma and leadership. Teddy Roosevelt's right at the top, but FDR, JFK, these, uh, Bill Clinton's up there. And well, at the other end is Jimmy Carter. Now, so it's something we all are attracted to. So it's a, uh, people fly like moths around a flame to psychopaths because of this charm and confidence, and they got the light around them when they walk into the room. That's one group. But this other side, it's, which is called impulsive antisociality, nobody likes. That's the one that's associated with ASPD, but also criminality. I do want to note that uh, probably listeners have seen on Facebook or other places uh, that, that some version of the, of the hair test, 20 questions scored zero, one or two. Um, I took a test that somebody sent me last week, and it came back with... Uh, with bad news. But I, again, you point out in the book that scoring 30 earns you a diagnosis, but a lot of people might score a 23 or a 15. And you also point out in your book that they probably should be weighted, some of these questions, some being more important than others. But uh, there might be such a thing as psychopath light. Yeah, the psychopath light could be thought of as people who are very uh, manipulative. A key thing is that they do not have a thing called emotional empathy. That is, they do not connect with other people's feelings, and they look at other people as things more than people. Uh, but they understand people's feelings, so they have this what's called cognitive empathy. And it's coded for in different brain circuitry, and different genetic alleles uh, impact these two. And, you know, it's like the, the, the world needs both kinds. And, you know, somebody with cognitive empathy, those people a lot of times are involved in a lot of charities. And uh, somebody who might have a very high cognitive empathy and low emotional empathy would be like Nelson Mandela. You know, if you, if you heard Nelson Mandela's daughter talk at his, uh, at his memorial, uh, she said this is basically a great man, but you didn't want to be his daughter. You didn't want to be close to him. And Gandhi the same way. Yeah, great you, man. You mentioned Gandhi in the book. He yeah. it was very... Was he was not so nice to some of the people around him. The closest people to, to him, he was not very nice to his wife and family. But these people do, do great works. It's just that you might not want to be close to them. They could be real jerks uh, uh, personally. Whereas those people who are close to family, close to each other, a lot of times they don't care about the world at large. They won't do great works, etc. So it goes with, uh, you know, if you, if you look at these psychopathic traits, there are positive things. But, you know, what's good for individuals and families is not necessarily good for nations in the world at large and vice versa. We you f very find very few people that are good at both. You're kind of one or the other. Many, some, a lot of people are in the middle. Let's talk about how the fact that psychiatry is, is noted for being, well, plagued by imprecision, I guess you'd say. Um, the DSM was put together to supposedly standardize things so there'd be more consistent diagnoses. But um, uh, the problem of how you can correlate behavior to physical realities, like, say, brain circuitry, is, is, is still problematic. Uh, you set out to discover what patterns might emerge from looking at uh, some brain scans of the truly deviant, uh, you know, psychopathic killers. And, and we're, we're, we're hampered by not having a blackboard. But basically, what did you discover? Over the years, starting in the 1990s, 
Uh, we started looking at one or two murders a year, and these are really hardcore bad cases, serial killers and particularly violent people. And some were impulsive murderers, but some were psychopathic. Over the years looking at these, this was really a, si really a sideshow to my real research. A lot of my work has been on adult stem cells and growth factors, very fundamental, basic wet lab stuff. But also through the 90s up till now, uh, in psychiatry, we've l looked at a lot of different patient populations, schizophrenics, people with depression, people with Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and addictions, and taken brain imaging infused with it the genetics involved. And, and using this, we're able to find out what genes are associated with certain disorders very quickly. And so that technique of being able to, to put a couple of key things, brain circuitry and genetics with the, uh, the diagnosis and the psychometrics, that is how the people behave in specific areas, this is a very powerful tool. And so in other areas, for other disorders, we've done very well in, for gene discovery and for finding out for personalized or individual medicine what person will respond to a certain drug uh, and, and also not have side effects. It's been a very powerful tool in the past 10 years. So that's really what we do. But as a sidelight to this, uh, you know, when I discovered my own brain pattern by mistake, because I was looking at a, all of these murders back in 2005 when I had a whole bunch of them, and I, you know, I found a pattern. I, I had never heard of a pattern that anybody came up with. So when I saw it, I became... I mean, it sounds like you're very, very cutting edge with this. Without knowing it. You know, I was doing a favor for collaborators because I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm an okay neuroanatomist, and so anytime for any sort of, you know, disease or function, I'm sent scans from all over the world, and so I have a lot of collaborators. And so with this, I, I really wasn't an expert on psychopathy or murder or anything like that. I looked at them all at once, and I didn't know who was who. So when I was given the scan, I said, "Don't tell me if these are murderers or normal or schizophrenics." When I had it really done blindly, so I couldn't create a narrative in my head for a pattern, then the pattern jumped out. And I said, good grief. I said, there's something to this. And that's when I started really becoming interested. And this pattern is a turning off of the area of the brain called the limbic system, the emotional brain. And that has a lot to do with a big C-shaped structure in the core of the brain that goes from the frontal lobe right above the eyes since it's above the eyes, it's called orbital cortex. And then it continues around in what uh, is called the fornicate gyrus or cingulate gyrus into the hippocampus and amygdala. So it makes a big C and it's this limbic cortex and it forms the interface between your animal drives and I guess the, the, the higher angels of our nature, if you will. And that whole system is there to kind of balance out your urges with what is good social behavior. So all the things in psychopathy are normal behaviors done at the wrong time. And so we have all these drives without which we wouldn't exist about, you know, for sex and aggression and protection and predatory behavior. Well, these are all useful in be being a human and being an animal on the planet. But when they're done out of context, now we're getting into what's psychopathy. These area of the brain, the limbic system, or the emotional brain, also called the social brain, because it has to do with how you interact with people. It's out of balance, so that all of these areas were turned off in a very funny way. So they weren't controlling each other. So the urges were not balanced with the social context that everybody has. And so psychopaths will do things that completely out of context to what is needed. 
I guess we can summarize by saying that yes, you you were seeing some patterns that people had not noticed before, and the, these these have, these held up with time. When I first saw them, uh, and then I discovered in a study that we're doing in Alzheimer's, purely by chance, it was ridiculous. At the same time, at the same couple of months, uh, we were going through the Alzheimer's scans, and I uh, we we needed some controls. So I brought myself and some other people in, and when these controls came back. I saw the scan in the normals and it looked just like one of the murders and I said something's wrong here. As it turned out the one scan that was abnormal when I peeled back the name, you know, this is when Gandalf showed up at my door and it was me, you know, Gandalf the Grey came kicking in and and uh, I just laughed and, and, and denied it because I knew it was a normal person, at least I thought it was a normal person. Let me spell this out even absolutely crystal clear for, for our listeners that back in 2005, you're examining brain scans, you're looking down, this is a classical uh, pattern of psychopathy that you've noticed, but it turns out that it's actually your brain scan. It, precisely. So when I peel back the name, it was, it was my name on there, and I looked at the technician and we just started to laugh. So we get, I get the joke, but go check the scanner to make sure that there hasn't been a mistake and... They checked several times and there was no mistake. It was me. We're speaking with Dr. James Fallon about his book, The Psychopath Inside, A Neuroscientist's Personal Journey into the Dark Side of the Brain. So at first you were just sort of laughing it all off and, and even I think your, your wife stepped in to say that's, you know, that, that's, that's not you. But as we'll talk about as we go along here, your, your thinking evolved. Yeah, I, about a year went by because we were so busy working on schizophrenia and Alzheimer's, we, these new genes we discovered, and I started this new stem cell company. So I was so distracted with that, and I just laughed it off. And but when I brought the scans home and I I, I showed it to my wife, I said, I said you got to check this out, and she said something unusual because I said this scan of mine looks just like the murders, like the psychopathic murders that I've been looking at. She said that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> I said, what the hell are you talking well, about? Nice to hear from your spouse. Yeah, yeah. right. And we've been, we've known each other a long time and we were our first dates with each other. So we dated when we were 12 years old and we had no idea what we were doing. We liked to dance and swim together. And then at 16, we started going steady. So she knows me as a kid, really, and all the way through. And she, in, in retrospect, in the past couple of years, said things over the years that were a very telling that I just didn't listen to. Let's take a few minutes and, and delve into that. Um, you, you spent a lot of time since that fateful day examining uh, your own personality, and, and you've come to some rather remarkable conclusions about yourself. Yes, I always thought I was a, a really nice guy, and, and I think people who know me think I'm a little eccentric, but like a regular guy. And I always thought of it that way. And that's the story I held on to for a couple of years. And then I happened to do a TED Talk. And from the TED Talk, which I wanted to do on our stem cell company, the TED people said, no, say, can you talk about something in science that's more personal and interesting? And I, this is my first mistake. So I said, well, yeah, I got this goofy story. And they said, well, that's it. You know, and a million and a half hits later, it was, it, when that showed up, because I didn't even know that they were going to put it on. They, they were putting it on YouTube at that time. But four or five months down the line, I got my colleagues said, uh, you, you know, check out YouTube. They put your talk up. I went, what? They said, yeah, your talk is up and it's got 30,000 hits overnight. I don't know anything about politics or business, but I found something about marketing. If you have a YouTube video and somebody puts a keyword psychopathic killer, you're going to get 30,000 hits overnight. And that's what happened. And from, that started an avalanche of things, interviews and, a, and, and then a book deal. And I never understood why it was so interesting to people. 
as I found out, a lot of people in, in their lives, they have husbands and wives or kids or brothers or sisters who are people who have these traits. And so there are a lot of people interested in it because it, they recognize something. It could be their boss. And so it became very interesting. So I kind of, it, it, it took on its own momentum. And so I've done a lot of interviews and, and talks about it, but I was still I said, well, maybe my theory's wrong or something. But it wasn't until a few years ago I went to Oslo. I was invited to give a talk on bipolar disorder, on the connections and genetics. And I was giving the talk with the ex-prime minister, Shel Bondovic, who was a prime minister. And during his first term, he found out that he had bipolar disorder. Well, he did something remarkable. He told everybody about it. In Europe, especially Northern Europe, especially Scandinavia, no public figure would ever say they have a psychiatric disorder. Well, he got treatment. He went on to finish a full, successful two terms uh, from that. I thought it was quite heroic what he did. So he and I gave a talk, but at the end of my talk, I had to use examples of how we find genes that are associated with disorders. Because I was talking about bipolar, but I, I used my own scans, my own genetics, and the history of all the clinical and subclinical things that I'd had since since birth, because I, you know, I have all of these serotonin-related things, and I had the, the genes to go along with it, the genetic alleles. And so I gave that, and at the end of that talk, that public talk at the University of Oslo, the head of the Department of Psychiatry, he stood up and he said, first of all, you don't realize it, but you were bipolar disorder yourself. It's just that you're hypomanic, so you're up so much, you don't know you're, when you're down. And he says, and also, can we talk to you afterwards? So I met with him several hours, he and some other psychiatrists, after the talk. And he said, uh, uh, you're probably also a borderline psychopath, too. That was the first time I took it seriously. It was a few years ago. That's when the, the ante went up, because I went home. And I said, there might be something to this, because these people didn't know me personally. You know, just a matter of professional stuff. We all have friends, and they say, oh, you're crazy, or this or that. And they're just kidding around. But these people had no reason to do that. And they had all of my data there. So it was sort of an objective look. And they had spent enough time with me as kind of long-in-the-tooth long uh, experienced psychiatrist to notice that in a lot of my discussions over several hours, there was something that was very telling to them. And so when I came back, I started to talk to all these psychiatrists that knew me well. You know, asked them to do something. And that is, I said, just tell me what you really think of me. That this was, uh, if, think twice before asking this question to, pe to people. I, and they started to talk about a whole litany, a whole list of my behaviors. They go, well, they said, you're kind of a psychopath. I went, wait, wait a second. And they didn't know that this, was, this other stuff was going on, really. Uh -huh. and, and they went through all of these behaviors. And, and over the years, they all said the same thing. You know, it was spread out. But when you put it all together, you're probably a borderline psychopath. And after that, I started taking the test and was and analyzed and psychiatrically gone through. And the basic conclusion was that I have all the drives, the ideations, the urges of a full-blown psychopath. It's just that somehow I, I control them, so I'd never act them out. Let's clarify. You've never had uh, committed any acts of violence. You've never gotten any kind of legal trouble. Uh, you, 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 you don't fit the standard criminal profile. Exactly. And it's sort of a bit mysterious to the psychiatrist. Uh, in, involved and you know why I had this control. I mean, if you look at my PET scan, the upper part of my cortex, kind of the thinking executive function, is 
overly turned on. And maybe that has something to do with the control. Plus, I'm happy and I'm a lucky I'm a lucky person. I was brought up really well, and I think that nurturing family, an extended family, a kind of offset some of the otherwise genetic influences that might have occurred. And I do have some of these, the many of those so-called warrior genes, but a couple of them, it turns out if you're raised and abused or abandoned, you end up, you know, you're very good chance you're going to have a personality disorder like psychopathy, but if you're treated well early on, it has the opposite effect. And some of these, are like, for example, the serotonin transporter, which is a warrior gene, except if you're treated well. then it. So I think what happened is I was raised so well and it was such a wonderful supporting family. And I was among a matriarchy that were very smart, too. So they knew how to handle me, you know. And it's only in the past couple of years that my mother, who's still alive, she's 97, she started to tell me things on how worried she was about me in puberty and how, how kind of a strange kid and dark person I could be. But you know, they knew how to manage me. You know, my mother, my aunts especially, because they worked together, right? They worked together against the men anyway. <laughs> but they and my father, it was wonderful, and my uncles and grandparents. So I had this great support group. And I think that gave me perhaps the tools. Plus, I, it was kind of from a very educated family. And I, I, you know, and I was around really nice people. And I think I've never, if I ever had the urge to do these psychopathic <laughs> things, it was, it was pointless. Because I had all the things I wanted. And, and so I, in fact, you know, I don't get arrested. I haven't been arrested. I don't, I don't kill or maim or rape or anything. And I'm, every stranger who meets me, they know, they have a sense that I'm okay. And I really am. It's just you don't want to be close to me because I just, uh, I don't love properly. I want, I want to return to that in a minute. But something you talk about in the book that um, bipolar disorder may be affiliated with psychopathy maybe you filled with other personality disorders which would certainly make sense if there's an area in the brain a circuitry that's out of whack this is what people have been looking for for some time there's an area that goes out there's multiple functions of different areas of the brain it would make sense that they would be linked right and parts of the brain an important part of the brain that has to do with depression is this what's called the cingulate cortex the bottom part right near that orbital cortex above the eyes and that is kind of turned on almost all the time in people with depression but the thing is, in people with bipolar, it goes on and off, on and off, at almost random times. And it's, it's affected by serotonin, sleep patterns, etc. cetera. And, and so when it's turning on and off, uh, I did have a lot of those symptoms. And in fact, the same, many of the same brain areas involved in depression, especially bipolar, are also involved in psychopathy, but not so much the amygdala in the same way. So even though some of the same brain areas, it's not the whole group of them together that are the same. So it's not the same for both psychopathy, but you could see, you know, looking at it from a neuroanatomical and a genetic point of view, how there could be comorbidity, overlap of the symptoms. These are essence coming together in this area. Right, that's right. You've noted, which is a surprising thing, that uh, you consider that what might be called negative traits, in fact, in your case, have worked out very well. And the fact that you may be a little bit bipolar, but uh, because you have a variety of it where you're not actually manic, but rather sort of a hypomania, not quite uh, the kind of person that goes out and buys a Ferrari, yeah, right. <laughs> which they taught. We remember hearing these stories in medical school, people in true mania walking in and convincing somebody that they should buy the Ferrari and driving off the lot with it. You're not in that category and being in a different category where you're not quite at that level, but are up all the time. This is for you actually a very good thing. Yeah. And I've always been very happy, be I think because of this, because I've always been hypomanic. And all the clinicians I've known over the years, I've always said this. They've noticed that they're complete hypomania. And the thing with hypomania, even though it's exhausting to other people, 
it really ticks them off because you're always in a good mood. And in fact, I'm just about always happy and I'm, I feel very good with my life. And even when things are, are challenges, I always seem to interpret them in a positive way. Like, oh, that's a learning experience. And then I fix it. So it's been very, very positive in my life. I think for just success, because, you know, I have been successful and I've done everything I've ever wanted to do. And I think that positivity, which could be a clinical s symptom, right, in a syndrome of hypomania, in my case, because I think I had advantages, uh, both in education and people around me, that I could turn it into gold in, in many, many ways. So it's, been, it's really turned out that even though I've had all these weird sleep issues and panic attacks, and I had full-blown obsessive-compulsive disorder when I was younger, uh, that all of these things that might have been taken negatively, I always thank my lucky stars for because they gave me insight into myself and to other people. And I thought it was, they thought they were all gifts, even though I, I guess I could have interpreted it as, as negative, like it's like, woe is me. It's, this is not because I'm a wonderful guy. I think it's just part of the syndrome. We must at this juncture take a short break, so let's do so. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Stick around. We've got plenty more. Well, he went down to dinner in his Sunday best. Excitable boy, they all said. And he popped a pot roast all over his chest. Excitable boy, they all said. 